I wrote this book called Brilliant Mondays, which I'm holding up if you're listening. And the book is all about how ordinary people achieve extraordinary things. Monday was actually my favorite day of the week. That, and that's why I called the book Brilliant Mondays, because Monday was the beginning of a new week where I got to go into this football academy and move a little bit closer to this vision of playing football for Ireland. There's what we do, there's how we do it, and there's why we're doing it. And he says that why we're doing it is the big predictor as to whether we'll succeed or not. What we do and how we do it connects to the logical part of the brain. Why we do it connects to the emotional part of the brain. Hello and welcome to the Honest Exchange podcast. I have a very exciting guest for you today. Stephen Kiernan is a man who I encountered nearly two years ago while I was working up in Bremore at the school and I came across the workshop. Stephen is an, an author who wrote the book Brilliant Mondays. And when I met him, he was given a workshop based on that book. Unfortunately, I came in a small bit late, but it didn't take away from anything that he was saying. He he has um, some brilliant stories in the book. Based on that interaction or me even just listening to him while I was actually during I was listening to him, I signed up for a triathlon, which uh, I completed. I think it was about six months later. So Stephen is a fantastic and inspiring person with a fantastic story, which hopefully he can share for us today. Stephen. How are you? Can you please tell us a small bit about what you were doing that day? Yeah. Where was the triathlon? The triathlon took place in Athlone. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it was something on my mind for a while. And then just a couple of words that you were saying just kind of sparked and inspired me to just sign up. And I think what you, one of the things you said, and you'll probably elaborate on, was you have to have a reverse engineering. And reverse engineering yeah. is one thing I took into my life where we have a goal and we work backwards. So if I had... Booked that triathlon, well, now I had to work. You'll always find a way. I will do it when, but that kind of instilled the reverse engineering in my mind. Uh, thank you for the lovely introduction, and I'm glad you took something away from the workshop. So my name is Stephen Kiernan, and I wrote this book called Brilliant Mondays, which I'm holding up if you're listening. And the book is all about how ordinary people achieve extraordinary things. Right? Ordinary people like me and you, Stephen, and everybody listening. And So for this book, I interviewed over 60 people who I put into that category of being an ordinary person who achieved something extraordinary. And what I did was I asked each of them the same seven questions because I was trying to figure out, you know, what is it that these people share in common? Uh, how can the rest of us learn from them in order to achieve extraordinary things ourselves, right? So I, I spent four years, I interviewed over 60 people for the book. Uh, I didn't meet one genius. I didn't meet anybody who was super talented or lucky or special or well-connected or any of these things that we, we imagine. Instead, what I met were people who shared four things in common. And we're going to try and work our way through those today. Number one was vision. They had a clear vision of what it is they wanted to achieve. Right? Extraordinary things are rarely, if ever, achieved by accident. Right? You're a triathlon. It began with a vision. You were going to do it in six months' time. Second part was planning and strategy. Right, these people had a plan and a strategy as to how they were actually going to turn their vision into reality. Again, hitting on reverse engineering you mentioned there. Uh, third was resilience. If you're working towards a big, exciting, compelling vision, you can be guaranteed one thing, and that is that problems and obstacles are going to appear along the way. And we're going to need to be resilient in order to overcome them. So we're going to have a quick look at that. The last section, probably the most powerful of all, and I think 
Uh, this will be the section we'll probably have the deepest dive into. The last section was continuous improvement. So these people, they look to improve a tiny little bit, but over a long period of time. Right, there were no quantum leaps forward. I didn't meet anybody who said to me, Stephen, I was pretty good at something. You know, I went to bed, woke up the next day, and, and suddenly I was world-class at something. Right? It doesn't work like that. And, and we know that, Stephen. Um, these people, they just got a tiny little bit better on a consistent and importantly on a deliberate basis. So when I, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I spend most of my time delivering workshops and talks in schools and companies where I'll talk about these principles. Um, and what I always do is I give the audience an individual challenge at the end for them to take on, to implement these ideas, to try and put the rubber to the road. I'll give the same challenge to your audience today. Um, but I, I, I delivered these workshops all over the place. I did 244 last year. Um, but before, before I tell you the first sort of section, I, I get this all the time. People say to me, oh, look, Stephen, you know, not everybody needs to achieve something extraordinary. And, you know, I'm certainly not here today say to anybody listening, you know, guys, you've all got to be achieving extraordinary things. I'm just here to make the case that if you do have an exciting vision or a dream or a goal of some kind, that your ability to turn that vision into reality, is it's probably a lot more within your control than you might imagine. So I go into schools or companies. I was, I was actually doing a, a Zoom call with a company. I'm going to be doing a workshop with them in September. And the director of marketing asked me at the end, she said, well, what's the overall takeaway from this talk or workshop? What do you want people to take away? And it's always the same. I want to move people from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. We have these principles, uh, but how I try and do it is through telling inspiring stories that people can relate to and see, look, if that person can do it, I can do it too. When I went to schools um, and I work with students, I tell them the same stories. Sometimes you're introducing them to the idea of growth mindset for the very first time. When I'm working with companies, uh, sometimes we'll have them working in groups. And uh, what we'll do is maybe we'll create a vision for the company for the year 2027. And we'll have people working in groups and working on strategies and activities. Sometimes I just go into companies and... Uh, they'll just want me to tell these stories to reinforce a growth mindset. So that's what I do. So you're doing workshops in school and you're talking about growth mindset and you're helping people improve, uh, as you said, 1% yeah. at a time. But the book is called Brilliant Mondays. So where did the idea of Brilliant Mondays come from? How does that relate to the workshops? Well, Brilliant Mondays, I call the book Brilliant Mondays because... Uh, when I was 16, I left school early because I'd got a place on the FBI had a professional soccer academy and it was based in Clondalk and it was funded by FOSS. So they paid us all. So for I, I left school and for the three years that followed, I got paid to play football every day. And as you can imagine, I loved every second of it, Stephen. Right? My vision was to play football for Ireland. And every day I'd go into this football academy and I would push myself like a lunatic in the pursuit of this vision. I, I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. And the growth that I experienced along the way as I got better at football, as I got faster and stronger. I remember the way I thought about it back then. I'll, I'll go on to this football academy every day and I would think about it, I would say, I'm fulfilling my potential. That's the way I thought about it. I'm fulfilling my potential and life was great. Right? I, I didn't care what day of the week it was back then. Monday was actually my favorite day of the week. That, and that's why I called the book Brilliant Mondays because Monday was the beginning 
of a new week where I got to go into this football academy and move a little bit closer to this vision of playing football for Ireland. And uh, now in reality, even at the time, I was probably miles away from, from that being becoming a reality. Uh, I start, I took up football quite late. So in some ways, my development was way behind other lads. But um, I got a very bad ankle break at 18. And that kind of ended my football career. It didn't heal properly. And back then, there was no route to go to England once you were over 18. You know, it was just, you made it by then, or you didn't make it at all. We didn't have Seamus Coleman. We didn't have James McLean. These guys who came through the League of Ireland and went to play in England at 22, 23. That didn't exist. So my leg was broke. The dream was done. And I had to go out to the big bad world and get what I would call a normal job. And I had lots of different normal jobs as the years went on. They weren't bad jobs. I great employers. I great colleagues. But I think looking back, Stephen, what these jobs lacked that I'd had in this football academy was an exciting vision to pursue and any kind of meaningful growth. Right? I'd have these jobs where there's just no opportunity to grow. There was no exciting vision. So I, I left my first job, moved on to another job. And, and what would happen is you'd be miserable on a Monday because you're not growing. You're not working towards anything exciting. I was used to push myself really hard. And like the first job I had was in a gym as a fitness instructor. And it was a quiet gym. I just sit there all day staring at the clock, just bored, hoping the day hurry up. So eventually I moved on to a different job in search of Brilliant Mondays and then another job until finally it kind of dawned on me. Maybe it's a lack of education. Maybe it's because I left school early to play football. That's why I don't have Brilliant Mondays. So as a mature student, I went to college. I got a business degree. And as I was finishing up this business degree, I was still a little bit worried. I might end up just as miserable on a Monday, um, but on slightly more money. And everybody who I voiced this concern to at the time, they said, Stephen, you're mental. That's life, pal. You don't have to love your job. You've got bills, you have responsibilities. Just got to get up and just get the job done. That's just the way life is, Stephen. And that advice, you know, from their experience and, and from what they'd known, that was fair enough. As I said, that's all they'd ever know. But there's... For me, it was a little bit different. There's a quote that I have at the start of the book. Um, it's by a guy called Oliver Holmes. And he says this, he says, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back to its original dimensions. Right? I knew Brilliant Mondays existed. I knew it was possible to wake up on a Monday morning and be genuinely excited about the week ahead. And, and to live any other way just seemed like madness. So that's why I went about writing the book. That's where the title Brilliant Mondays came from. And... Like just before we move on, Stephen, just an observation that I took away, and I rarely mention this, you know, but just after four years of research for the book, after a lot of deep reflection as to, you know, what was so amazing about my time on that football academy, I, I realized I didn't need to achieve my vision in order to have Brilliant Mondays. I never did get to play football for Ireland, but I had Brilliant Mondays because I had an exciting vision that I was constantly growing towards. I think that's a very important part of life. And when goal. you were working these uh, jobs, did, was that vision yeah. always in your head? Did you work then uh, normal nine to five jobs and work on these interviews at the same time? No, I actually did it as I was finishing up college. Uh, no, I, this was so I would I would have finished on the football academy. I think I just turned nineteen. I worked as a fitness instructor uh, in a boarding school for a couple of years. I loved that, but again. I was used to being ambitious and pushing myself really hard. There was no real opportunity for me to grow. I They would have had me working as a teacher there if uh, if I had any education, if I had the qualifications. And I still 
I was at a 50th birthday party there uh, last weekend. You know, I've still a lot of great friends there. It was very, I think I warmed more towards education because teachers became my friends as I worked in that job. And I don't think I would have gone to college if it wasn't for that. Uh, but then I worked as a, as a, for a builder for maybe uh, four years. Uh, but I was so disengaged. I spent four years working for a builder. I know nothing about building. <laughs> nothing. Right? Very, very little. I would just bring supplies and tools to different jobs and, and, and stuff like that, maybe do some laboring. I know so little because uh, I was just wasn't engaged at all. And then I worked as a, a computer shop. And again, they weren't bad jobs. They weren't bad jobs. They were, they were fine. But I was used to this experience of having something really exciting to push yourself towards. And the growth felt amazing. And I, and I wanted to get back to that. And it wasn't until I was finishing up the business degree in Athlone that uh, I started to, initially I came up with seven questions, as I said, and I started writing off to successful people and I'd asked them to write the answers to the seven questions. And then I think it was Ian Taylor, who was, he's the, he was the youngest Irish man to climb Mount Everest. I contacted him and he said, well, why don't you come and interview me in person? And then that really began the process of interviewing people face to face. And again, going into deep dives, a lot of the interviews um, were four, five, six hours long. And it's a lot of work. Like it took me four years. But if you interview somebody for five hours, you got to then listen back to five hours of audio, which could take you 40 hours and pick mm -hmm. out what are the relevant parts, what's not relevant, where where do you put what. And so it was a huge undertaking. But um so that's really how I got to the title and uh, when I wrote the book as well. You know, the, And so you the said you had three main things. We talked about vision. The other two were planning and resilience. Uh, yeah. So it was vision, the clear vision. Second was planning and strategy. Basically break it down to small steps. Third was resilience. And the last was continuous improvement. And that's where I think the real magic is. Like uh, that's the sort of missing piece that I think a lot of people, a lot of people have a vision that have a bit of a plan. They might have some resilient strategies. But I don't, I think all of us falter in our uh, intention to improve a tiny little bit over a long period of time. I think we underestimate it and we don't put simple systems in place that make these improvements easy to capture. And so, so in, in, in um, steps that I know it's a lot more elaborate when we do the workshops, uh, the two yeah. hours long, as I said, I was in the second half of one and yeah. we have stories and engaging. What, in a simple form, um, do you teach them about planning, resilience, and or continuous improvement? Well, I can take you through like snippets of each section, if you like. Right. So yeah. in the book, uh, there's four sections. It's mapped out like the workshop vision. There's three chapters that I have in the vision section. And when I'm delivering it in a workshop, I change up which stories that I tell to keep it interesting for myself more so than anything. But probably my favorite story to tell is about an amazing lady called Debbie Deegan. And I interviewed Debbie for about three hours. 25 years ago, Debbie was a stay-at-home mother from Clontarf in North Dublin. And she adopted a, a little Russian orphan girl who was six years of age. Now, initially, Debbie was only supposed to take this girl for a two-week holiday. But when the little girl arrived at the house, she was in such a state, really just of neglect. 
And Debbie just said, there's no way we can send this little girl back to that orphanage. There's no way because she deserves to be loved, cared for properly and have an opportunity to fulfill her potential. So what followed was all sorts of legal wrangling. Uh, the, the Irish government were saying you have to send her back. The Russian government were saying we want her back. Um, the police were involved. The embassies were involved. But Debbie, she dug her heels in and, and eventually they agreed to let Debbie adopt this little girl. They said to her she was six. They said you can adopt her when she was 12. But Debbie just said that's so, there's so much critical development that will happen between six and 12. We can't send her back. So eventually when everything's all legalized, Debbie said to me, you know, I realized I've kind of taken this little girl away from the only people in the world that she's ever known, all her little friends back at the orphanage. So she decides I've got to bring her back to Russia to see her friends say goodbye properly and let them know, you know, that she's okay and that she's happy in Ireland. Now, when Debbie arrived at the orphanage for the very first time, she said she could barely believe her eyes. All of the kids were in the same condition. They were all in a state of neglect. There was very few people working in this orphanage. The people who were working there were doing the absolute best that they could. But there was so few of them, so many orphans, so few resources. I I met Debbie there uh, just before Christmas had coffee with her and we talked for maybe four hours. She told me so much more detail about the orphanage that I never really knew. Um, there was like tame rats. I've never heard of a tame rat, but there were tame <laughs> rats all over the place uh, in the kids' beds. These kids, they were in a state of maybe physical, nutritional neglect, but what they were hungriest for most of all was love and affection. She said, they, we just went around hugging these kids and telling them they were beautiful. No one had ever said anything like that to them in their lives. So she, she, she leaves the orphanage for the very first time. She told me she made a promise to the little girl who she just adopted. She said, look, you know, I don't know what I can do to help your friends here at the orphanage, but I, I'll do whatever I can. So to cut a long story short, she comes back to Ireland and on her kitchen table with the help of some friends, they're sitting there and they ask this same question. It's something along these lines. What would have to happen at that orphanage in order for all of the kids to feel loved, cared for, and have an opportunity to fulfill their potential? So what they did was they created a vision of what this orphanage needs to become. And Debbie spent the next 20 years trying to turn that vision into reality. She transformed the lives of 5,000 children, over 5,000 children. She's raised millions of euros to do that, to change the orphanage. And she's been back and forth to Russia almost every six weeks. She travels for a week, almost every six weeks, back and forth for the last 20-something years. Now, lots of people have helped along the journey. Right? She'd be the first to say so many people helped, but one woman has led the entire journey, Debbie Deegan. And she began that journey with literally nothing except for a vision and a whole lot of desire to give these kids, and uh, you know, many, many more like them, the start in life that we all deserve. Now, with Debbie, I interviewed Debbie and I started to see, as I interviewed more and more people, the power of having a clear and exciting vision. My Debbie didn't transform this orphanage by accident. Right? And so when I'm in a school or a company, I'll often use an example to try and highlight the power of having a clear and exciting vision. The, the example that I often use is let's imagine, because I'm usually working with transitioner students in schools. I'll say, let's imagine we have two girls in a class here today called Claire and Amy. Let's imagine they're the exact same age, say 16 years of age. They're both bright, kind, intelligent girls, right? This sort of same level of ability across the board, right? There's just one key difference. Claire has no vision. 
And she has no clue what she wants to do, right? Probably like most 16-year-olds. But there's certain things Claire kind of has to do, right? She sort of has to go to school. So a bit of Claire's energy is going towards school. She doesn't know she wants to go to college, though, right? So she's she's going, showing up for school most days, but she's not killing herself, right? She's got to do homework and exams. Claire is capable of A's and B's, absolutely. But again, she doesn't know if she wants to do anything that academic. She thinks, ah, C's and D's will do. Bit of her energy is going towards watching Netflix. Bit of her energy on social media. Her friends say, Claire, you want to hang around the park later? Claire says, well, I'm doing nothing else. I may as well. Tomorrow, somebody says, Claire, you want to come to the cinema? And again, Claire says, well, I'm doing nothing else. I may as well. Now, Stephen, what happens is, despite the fact that Claire is a very bright, kind, intelligent girl, because she's no visions at all, her energy is just dispersed off in a million different directions. And as a result, she never gets very far in any particular field. Now, Amy, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Amy's been watching the Irish ladies hockey team play over the last couple of years, right? She's seen them almost out of nowhere. This team got to the World Cup final. Then they went to the Tokyo Olympics, right? First Irish women's team to ever qualify for the Olympics. Amy's been inspired by this. And she says, that's what I want to do. When I'm older, I want to play hockey for the Irish ladies senior team. And she means it, right? So Amy has a vision. So imagine, uh, I always do a drawing of um, a, a V in a circle that's way off in the distance. I have their names written down below. But I say, Amy's so inspired by her vision. She's training with a local hockey club twice a week. Right? So there's a bit of energy going towards that vision. She's so inspired by her vision. She's always pushing herself much harder than the other girls in training. She's got a game, so more energy going towards vision. She's got a game every week, more energy towards the vision. She starts to research, what are the ladies on the senior team doing that I'm not doing? She says they're doing two weight sessions a week. Amy says, right, I'm going to do two weight sessions a week as well. More energy towards the vision. Uh, and finally, maybe she's researching stuff like diet and nutrition. Right, what's the best food she can eat to fuel her body for high performance? Now, what happens is over time, right, not overnight, as we know, nothing happens overnight, but over time, because Amy is so clear and so excited by her vision, she's able to harness enough energy in the one direction that she achieves. And it's not because Amy's a much better athlete than Claire. She's not. It's just that she's found a vision that she's clear on and that she's really excited by. And it doesn't matter what any of us want to do, right? Whether we want to uh, write a book. Whether we want to do a triathlon, we want to play hockey for Ireland or run a marathon or get a promotion. Being clear on the vision is half the battle. So this applies, this idea of harnessing her energy in the one direction. It applies, I've, I've coached a lot of sports teams. I've coached all across America, all across Ireland. And I know with football teams, I could say to my team, right, we're going to play our local rivals on Saturday and we're going to play a defensive strategy, right? And we could win the game. Or I could say the opposite. I could say, we're going we're gonna to play an attacking strategy and we could still win the game. But if some of my players decided they're going to play defensively, others are going to play attacking, and others are going to do whatever the hell they want, right? A good opposition team will pick holes all over the place and absolutely destroy us, right? So because we, we're all working off a different vision, whereas if you could have a team um, that has a clear vision, they know exactly what the vision is, what their role is within it, we can harness our energy in one direction. With a sports team, you can beat a team of technically much better players if everybody has the same clear vision and they're singing off the same hymn sheet. I work with companies all the time and, and I do this drawing again. And, you know, we can have lots of people where if the company doesn't have a clear vision and you'd be astonished at companies that don't have a vision or if they do have a vision that only the people at the very top know what the vision is. And people down, lower down, 
uh, the food chain, they don't know what the vision is, or do they have any clear idea of what their role is in turning that vision into reality? And in that scenario, what you can have, and this happens in a lot of companies, is you have a lot of people working really hard, but in different directions. And people are saying, well, I'm doing my bit. I know I'm working hard. But unless there's a clear common vision and people are harnessing their energy towards it, the company doesn't really advance. And in that scenario, uh, people, when they're not clear in the vision, when they don't even really know what their role is, people are stressed. They become frustrated. And you get a lot of people who leave companies like that. There's very little meaning to it as well. Uh, whereas on the, on the other side, uh, when I'm with a company, again, when we're doing the workshops, when we do the vision section, if we're trying to get people within the company to create the vision, there's a real sense of ownership. And people really feel on board. And uh, in that sort of scenario, people tend to thrive and have a real sort of sense of ownership. And it makes sense for the story about um, Amy or Claire, whoever was playing the hockey, that she has the yeah. vision. Amy, so yeah. she has the vision yeah. and kind of implements the reverse engineering in a way that she's yeah. something to work towards. When she knows what she has to work towards, it's easy to plan for. She knows what she has to do. When she yeah. has a plan and she has a goal, something that sets her back is a lot easier to overcome in terms of the resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And just keep implementing that. Well, for a long period of time. One, you one of the thing, yeah, well, one of the things I talk about is, again, you know, is the, I say your vision does not need to be exciting to anybody else in the world, but it needs to be exciting to you. And this is why it, you can't have somebody influence you and say, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. It has to be your vision because there's no way you'll overcome the obstacles. We'll look at that a little bit later on as well, but you're absolutely right. You know, when once you're clear on the vision, you're excited by it. You can harness your energy towards it. And it's not that Amy uh, wants to play hockey for Ireland. It's not that she never goes to the park with her friends or goes on social media or watching Netflix. She does those things, but she kind of does them after she's done her work towards her vision. And it doesn't really feel like a sacrifice because she's just so excited by this vision, you know? So just to sort of wrap up this section, as I would in a workshop, um, I'm interviewing these people and I started to come across uh, something. Actually, I have the book right beside me here. Uh, it's called Peak. And it's by a guy called Anders Ericsson. I'll mention him a lot in the continuous improvement section. But he talks about mental representation. He's the world's leading expert in expertise. Died a couple of years ago, quite young. Um, but he talks about mental representations, having a clear picture, bringing your vision to color, a bit like a vision board, right? But we have... Mental representations, we can also have physical representations uh, of what our vision is. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. When I'm in schools, I might say to students, look, if you want to be a doctor, right, go up to Trinity College or one of these universities, wander around the medical faculty, right? Watch the medical students as they go about their business. You'll see they're not that special. If they can do it, you can do it too. Try and sit in a lecture if you can get away with it, right? And what you're doing is you're creating mental representations of what it would be like you being a medical student. And again, that's pretty exciting. And when you're sitting in the evenings trying to decide, will I study or will I watch Netflix? If you're thinking about getting back into that college, into those rooms legitimately, that's very exciting. Uh, but we've got physical. So an architect will create maybe a mental representation with a plan, right? But they also can go a step further. And if it's a big building, they can do a little model of what the building, but they'll scale it down. They'll have a little model. And you can see what it would look like. You know, they probably do it on... Um, 3D printers now, I would imagine. They used to do it like matchsticks back in the day. <laughs> but just, just something I did 
you know, I'm interviewing these ordinary people who achieved extraordinary things. I started to try and implement some of these ideas, like mental representation, into my own life, right? Not in any big, extraordinary way, but just in my own little way. But this is my book. Anybody who's watching, I'm holding up my book. This is the fancy, professionally printed up version. Uh, it took me four years to write a very long and very difficult process. And I can remember about two and a half years into the journey, Stephen, I felt absolutely drained. Right. I, I felt like a battery that had like a tiny little bit of charge left in it. And I knew in order to finish this book, it's going to take a huge amount of energy. And I, I genuinely didn't know where I was going to get it from. But after learning about mental representations and physical representations, I had this idea. Long before this book was finished, uh, I, I maybe a year and a half before it was finished, I paid a guy in that loan to design the cover of the book. Right, a guy called Darry. Shout out to Darry, he's listening, right? Um, and then what I did was I went into a printer's in the center of Dublin and I paid them to print up this fake copy of my book. So yeah, I'll hold up the two of them. You can testify, Stephen. They look very similar. Uh, the, fake, the fake copy is slightly bigger, but on, on the inside of the fake copy, it's just blank pages. Right? It's just blank pages, but I, I would keep this on my desk. And every day I was, as I was working towards finishing the real book, I'd pick up this fake copy I'd look at it. I could see what my book would look like. I could see a book with my name on it. I mean, that just made the vision seem too real to give up on, uh, despite the fact, you know, how difficult it was to finish from this point here. And I think that was a very important tool in helping really bring my vision to life and get, getting the job done as well. So that's the vision section. Uh, that's a snippet of it. Uh, hopefully that gives people a good overview. Have you any questions or comments? No, just I, I really like the idea of having the end product there because yeah. you kind of, as you said, their comment was like, you could not do it. You can't, you're not going to go to the effort of getting someone to print it, have it there, and then end up saying, I'm not doing it. It's always in your mind. It's always in the mindset that, well, am I going to fail? Am I, am I going to give up? The book is there already written. So many people give up writing books. So many people. And I've read... People have sent me like the first sort of three or four chapters of books. And I'll be like, that's brilliant. It's It really is difficult to get the job done. But uh, once I printed up this fake copy, I just, how could I not finish it? How could I not finish it? And I think what I did in the end was I got to a point, because you could be forever interviewing people for this book and ever trying to find, uh, you know, more and more um, ideas. But what I did was I kind of got to a point where I thought, this is good enough now. This is good enough to put out into the world. If people read this book, they'll take value from it. And I thought, right, we need to pull the trigger at this stage. Um, I, You know, interesting, I won't mention names, but there's a guy, a girl actually who I know, her brother plays for the Dublin senior football team. And she was telling me that when he was a kid, he'd made a, a sort of Sam Maguire cup out of tinfoil and he had it at the end of his bed. And he's won several of them now. I won't mention his name because I have no permission to talk about it. Um, but you know what I mean? You'll see this with people again and again. I'm watching this uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, documentary. Have you seen any of it on Netflix? No. Three parts? Okay, so it's three parts, three episodes. And it's basically three different evolutions of them. There's the athlete where he became Mr. Olympia. There is the movie star who became the top highest paid movie star in the world. And then there's the politician when he became the governor achieved on an incredible level in three different fields. We're going to actually touch on something in the next section. It's very similar. But he talked about his visions and he talked about uh, the rifle approach. 
And it was the bullet was going directly towards the bullseye. And, you know, I think it's probably for me, I always think about it. I, when I achieve things, but I'm, as I get older, I'm more mindful of, I think about myself, like as if a battery, if I just sit by myself and I'm trying to write or prepare things, if I'm not around people, I start to become drained. If that work is required, but I start to become drained. So I have to get out there and be social to sort of keep my battery high and keep it performing well. So I think balance is key, but it's different for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, and I I was had a podcast a couple of weeks ago with the golfer, and he said the quote like, "There's no point not aiming for the top, because as you said with the bullseye or the Sam Maguire, that is setting you up for success. You're not putting down. uh, I'm I'm I might write a couple of chapters of a book and I might finish it. I'll win a county title, and if that goes well, I'll I'll go to Sam Maguire. Having a direct vision and and the bullet bullseye and not just at the, at the map, kind of gives you a bit of a, a clearer, more precise vision. Absolutely. And, and it allows you to ask questions that are, like if, if you decide you want to earn um, 100,000 a year, you ask yourself, how do I earn 100,000 a year? But if you want to make a million a year, it's, it, it gives you different answers. You know, the clearer you are, it's just different, different answers to, to, to different questions. So, um, the planning and strategy section. We move once on to you that. have your vision in place, you yeah, have once to you have your, so your plan and strategy. Exactly. So that's what I have in my notes. Your vision in place, it's clear and exciting to you. What we want to do now is try and create a plan and a strategy to turn that vision into reality. This section in the book, uh, one of the people who's in the, in the chapters is Nikki Byrne from Westlife. And uh, Nikki was a footballer. I don't know if you know that, with Leeds mm-hmm. United. Yeah, so he's, he's achieved at a high level. He said to me when I interviewed him, he, he was described as a good little keeper. He just wasn't quite tall enough, maybe, to reach the very highest level. Um, but he he was very generous with his time. I spent about five hours with Nicky. He, we might talk a little bit about him later on the podcast if we have time. But he, he was telling me about the influence that his dad had over him and his dad's sort of philosophies in life. Um Really interesting to hear. Quite heartbreaking. You know, he really, his dad was his best friend. He he really misses him. Uh, I actually got it. I was recording on my iPhone and uh, I got a call from my dad in the middle of it. And I said, oh, we'll, we'll just let it ring out. And he said, no, no, answer. I'd kill to get a call from my dad. So uh, his dad was dead he, uh, five years at that stage. So but who I want to talk about in this section. And again, I'll just give you a snippet of this story is a man named Paul McNeef. And Paul is a very successful man. But what I find most interesting about him is he's achieved success in various different fields, completely different fields. But for us to understand how has he been able to do it, I've got to take you back to the year 1982. Right? Paul has crashed his car. It's the middle of the night, the car is upside down and it's on fire. He was 20 years of age at the time. Uh, it was a very serious accident. Paul, Paul told me before his accident, he described himself as Mr. Drifter, right? He said he just drifted through life. He said he just throw everything up in the air, see where it lands. And he says, and then you have expressions like, well, everything happens for a reason. And he said, when he looks back, it didn't happen that way for a reason. It happened that way because he wasn't really doing anything to make it happen any other way. But there's a very serious crash. He ends up losing both his legs. The burns were so bad on his legs, they had to amputate both his legs. And he ends up in rehab in Dunleary 
as they tried to basically put him back together. The vision there was to get him on prosthetic legs, to get him back on his feet. And he said that it was here that they taught him all about goal setting. Now, this was 1982. In Paul's mind, goal setting was American mumbo jumbo stuff, right? He didn't want to know anything about it, never set a goal before in his life. But there was a big obstacle between them getting Paul from where he was to being back on his feet, being on prosthetic legs and getting back to doing as many things as he could before his accident. There was a major obstacle. Now, I'm not going to tell you the obstacle. But we're gonna, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, but you can read about it in uh, Brilliant Mondays. Or Paul actually has uh, a brilliant book, a great book called Small Steps. And it's sort of half autobiography, half business book. Really, really good. I uh, highly recommend that. You get the, the full story there. But he's got this obstacle to overcome. And what they, what they do is they get Paul to create a vision. They tell him to visualize himself back on his feet. And they're, at, they're saying, we want you to imagine yourself dancing. Right? What color shirt? would you be wearing? And he's creating these visions. And uh, what they do is they break the vi- they break the goal down of getting him back on his feet down into a series of tiny steps, a series of daily steps. And what they do is they take these actions every single day. And in three months time, the vision is reality. Paul is fit with prosthetic legs and he's able to hobble into his best friend's 21st birthday party, which he said, just marked like a huge step on his road to recovery. Right? So, um, As I said, Paul had never set a goal before in his life, but he was so impressed with this process of setting and achieving goals. He thought to himself, I wonder, could I apply this idea in other areas of my life? So he told me when he left rehab, he went back out into the big, bad world. He begins to try and apply this lesson in other areas of his life. Over the years, Paul went on to become the managing director, right? The boss of a company um, was a property auctioneer company, over 50 million euro annual turnover, very successful businessman. He became the first double amputee helicopter pilot in the world, right? He's written two, I think three books now, Small Steps. He's written a book called The Manhattan Project. It's a fiction book, very successful. When I, if I mention Paul in a workshop or a talk, very often somebody afterwards will ask me, is he the guy who wrote The Manhattan Project? Very, so he's written a very successful businessman, first double amputee helicopter pilot in the world, probably a best-selling author. I'll have to look into that, right? He also has a number one hit song in the Irish charts, right? This man has achieved success again and again and again in completely different fields by following this lesson that he learned in rehab. Have a clear vision that's exciting to you. Break it down into a plan of small steps and take action almost every single day. And what, what, I, what I love about Paul's story is when we look at people who are achieving things that we go, well, I'd love to do this or I'd love to do those things as well. But we imagine that person must be special. They must be gifted or a genius and all. There's no way Paul could be a naturally talented businessman, naturally talented helicopter pilot, naturally talented author, naturally talented musician and songwriter. No, he just took these lessons uh, from, from that he learned in rehab, having a clear vision, breaking it down into a plan of small steps and taking action every day. And he's been able to replicate this success in various different fields. I spend about six hours interviewing Paul in his house in Wicklow. And one of the things that he kept trying to impress upon me again and again and again, he's really trying to drill this into my head, is this idea that small successes lead to bigger successes and bigger successes. In my mind, I always think about it like this. And I do this drawing when I'm doing a workshop. You might help me describe it as well, Stephen. So we've got, um, let's say, a matchstick person. 
And what we do is we have a circle in front of them. And what I say is that this circle represents a goal that they want to achieve. Now, in order to achieve it, they're going to have to work hard and they're going to have to push themselves. But they do and they succeed. So we stick a little S into that circle now for success. Now, what happens is in, in achieving this goal, they grow. They grow in skills. They grow in ability. They grow in confidence and belief in themselves. They grow in experience and reputation. And what happens is we've got a, we've got a slightly taller matchstick person just beyond that circle. And we've stuck a bigger circle in front of that matchstick person because they've set themselves a bigger goal now. And they succeeded that. And what happens is they grow again. And maybe at this stage, with the third sort of matchstick person who's much bigger than the first two, you might say, hang on, this time I'm going to set myself a really big vision. Really see does this process work? And they achieve that. And eventually we have a matchstick person. And we have a circle beside them that's so big, we stick an E in this one. Because at that point there, what they do is they start to achieve things that are so big, other people looking on from the outside will say, my God, that's extraordinary. Did you see what they did? It was extraordinary. And I guarantee at that point here, people will come along at this stage. They won't see, uh, you know, all the growth and all the hard work that led up to these extraordinary achievements. They'll just see the big stuff and they'll say, well, I'd love to do extraordinary things as well. And I would if I was talented like them or gifted like this person or special or a genius. I spent four years interviewing these people, Steve. I didn't meet anybody who was super talented or special or any of these things we imagine, what these people shared in common, whether you want to achieve the big vision or a small vision, right? If it's beyond your current abilities, what we require is a clear vision. It's exciting. It was a plan and a strategy. We need to be resilient and we need to continuously improve a tiny little bit, but over a long period of time. What I love about that diagram is that yeah. it's so unbelievably simple. It's stickmen and it's circles, but the idea and the whole idea that you're talking about, when you really break it down, is simple. Yeah. And you use these stories to make and implement. Like when you describe this, it kind of sounds too simple to someone. So yeah. you kind of need the stories to back it up. Yeah. Like it's it, that that picture essentially describes a domino effect. But you look at a massive domino the size of a house, you think, oh, I'm not big enough to, to knock that down. But as you said, if you have them gradual steps and you knock them dominoes and you realize I can do this, that well, big domino doesn't seem so big. What we'll do, Stephen, is we'll get a, we'll get a picture of this up maybe somewhere, so people can have a look at it. But it. Definitely, this very first matchstick person, right? When they're there, the idea of achieving the, the things that this giant matchstick person would achieve might seem impossible, right? But what we need to do is just, you go, but do you think you can get from there to there? Most people say, yeah, I can get from there to there. And when you get to there, you'll believe you can get to there. And when you get to there, you'll become a person who believes they can get to there. And the more that I you know, learned about this and, and observed it and came up with these drawings because, again, these are mental representations. And as you said, it does seem almost too simple. It, it is simple. What I'm saying today is not uh, revolutionary. I'm not coming up with stuff that people, you know, have never heard or not reinventing the wheel. It's not rocket science. It's just, it's not that easy unless you put structure around it, unless you have role models. And again, what I do is, I'm giving you the bare bones. I'm giving you the structure of stuff. When I'm delivering a workshop in a school or a company, what I rely on is the strength of the stories. I'm only giving you snippets of it, but that's really is the strength of the stories. And we reinforce these ideas with these images. And so are you any questions? Again, we just got to break our visions down. Into, and you know what? Break it down to a series of small steps. You don't need every step. You don't need to. You just need to know the first few steps. And you'll make progress and you'll be able to see the next few steps when you get to there and beyond and beyond and beyond.
And at this point, I come into the room and I watch the workshop and you start to talk about resilience. And it really resonated with me because I I was only thinking today for some reason I had the the word resilience in my head today. And it wasn't to do with the, the, the podcast, funny enough. And I just think it's one of the things that especially young people lack and not only young people, I think people achieving goals lack that once they get the first setback, they give up. So how do you kind of implement and uh, teach resilience in terms of this whole goal setting? Well, again, it's a story. Start with a story. And, And just, you know, you're a teacher. When I'm in schools, I I always end up because sometimes I'm in a school and I'll do two or three workshops and I have to go up to the the staff room to have lunch and teachers will be saying, what do you do? And I say, I wrote this book and I'll say it's about vision, planning and strategy, resilience. And they go, resilience. That's what they need. Resilience. (laughs) And for me, being resilient is, is almost trying to have developed a mindset and some strategies in advance. Right. It's to accept that if I have this big vision or even a small vision, if I want to really, if it's beyond my current abilities, between where I am now and getting to that vision, problems and obstacles will appear. And what we want to do is because we're human beings, we're emotional creatures, when obstacles appear, none of us are happy about it. Right. We're and and it's difficult to think logically and strategically when you're emotional. So it's much better to think in advance is that what you're going to do. This story that you would have come into. It's probably the best story of the four that I tell. It's probably the best story that I tell out of any of the stories from the book. Um, uh, I maybe do the most acting in this one. You know, I'm always acting parts out and there's great pictures and all. Um, But this is a story. The main person who I interviewed was Nando Parado. And in 1972, it's quite a famous story. Nando was part of the Uruguayan rugby team who were traveling to Chile for a rugby match. Now, they chartered this small old army plane because it was a small plane, but the pilot didn't want to fly over the highest part of the Andes Mountains to get to Chile because this plane was quite small. It's a 45-seater. So the plan was they're going to fly down alongside the Andes, and then where there's a gap in the mountains, they would fly through the gap and then back up towards Santiago, the capital of Chile. Now, what happened was the pilot turned way too soon. They're in the clouds. Before they know it, they, they, the clouds disappear. They can see they're about to hit a mountain. Now, the pilot pulls the plane up as quick as he can, almost makes it over the top, but the back of the plane breaks off, and the front part of the plane toboggans down the long the side of a, a mountain, and it comes to the rest, comes to rest at the bottom of a snow-filled valley, right high up in the Andes Mountains. Of the 45 passengers on board, 29 survived that initial impact. Now, of those who were able to climb out of the wreckage, immediately after the crash, at the bottom of this snow-filled valley, they climb out of the wreckage, they look at this wall of mountains that surrounded them at every angle, and they came to this very important conclusion. Like they said, it would be impossible for us to climb out here, right? Impossible. The only hope we have is to wait for rescue. So they climb back into the wreckage. It's minus 30 degrees outside that first night. They huddle together for warmth against the minus 30 degree temperatures outside. And they begin to wait for rescue. Now, day after day goes by, they can see planes flying above them. But the problem is they're at the bottom of a snow-filled valley. That they, they assume these are rescue planes. They're at the bottom of a snow-filled valley and their plane is white. So day after day goes by, two things happen on day 10. Number one is they hear in the radio that they've hooked up to a battery that the search and rescue effort to find them has been called off, right? That's not good. That's not great, right? Uh, second thing was they decided on the 10th day, and probably why this story is so famous, on the 10th day they decide 
in order to survive, they would have to eat the dead. There's a, a film called Alive made based on this. Ethan Hawke played Nando in. Um, so they sit there waiting for rescue. And it's not until, day, even though they know no one's looking for it, it's not until day 30 that they finally begin, you know, penny drops and somebody says, the only hope we have is if we rescue ourselves. Now they begin to look at this wall of mountains that they said on day one were impossible to climb over. And they begin to ask, if we were to try and climb out of here, how would we do it? Now, once they start to ask questions like this, solution-based questions, all of a sudden, you know, possible answers, possible solutions begin to sort of present themselves out of nowhere. So they go through this phase over the next 30 days of like trial and error where they begin to trek off in different directions to try and learn about the snow and the terrain. They start to make makeshift tools out of the airplane wreckage, like snowshoes, backpacks, sleeping bags. And on day 60, it's decided that Nando and his best friend, Roberto Canisa, will be the two to try and climb over these mountains. And there's lots of amazing pictures. I'm really just summarizing the story. There's lots of amazing pictures, lots of twists and turns, but they climb over this mountain and they begin to trek through uh, the Andes Mountains. On day 72, they finally come across a man on a horse who's able to go to an army base, takes some 12 hours to get to an army base. And... The long and the short of it is 16 out of the 45 survive. Now, there's two key things that stood out for me, not with just with that story, but with a lot of the interviews that I did. A lot of the people who I interviewed said to me, Stephen, look, my vision's becoming a reality, almost the opposite to what you mentioned with kids. You know, they'll encounter an obstacle. They go, well, there's evidence I'm not good enough. It was the opposite. These people would say, I decided my vision's becoming a reality. And any obstacle that I face along the way, I will find a solution to overcome it. So these people, when they encountered obstacles and problems, like everybody does, they didn't dwell too much on, right? Instead, they switched all their focus towards solutions. And they asked some very basic solution-based questions. And when we look back at the Andes plane crash, on day one, they all climbed out of the wreckage at the bottom of the Snowfield Valley. They looked at the wall of mountains and every one of them said, impossible. It's impossible to climb out of here. And, but on day 30, when they finally begin to look for solutions and answers to climb over these mountains, they begin to see solutions and answers that were there all along. Even on day one, they just hadn't noticed them because they weren't looking for them. If people listen to this, begin to look for solutions and answers to climb over whatever obstacles stand between them and their visions, they'll find them too. Uh, in the book and in some of the, some of the uh, workshop material, I have some basic questions. How can I solve this? Very basic. Might take you two or three days with a notebook. But what happens is when people begin to look for solutions, um, they begin to see them. It might take a couple of days. How have other people solved this problem? Right? Whatever obstacle or challenge you're facing, it's highly likely somebody else has faced it and overcome it. What can we learn from them? The last one that I have maybe in this student section is who can help me solve this? I really think, you know, problem shared is a problem halved. It's very true, very powerful. And when I'm working with a company, sometimes... Uh, the vision might seem a little bit too big, right? And I, I, I'll admit that. I'll say this might seem like it's impossible. And I'll, I'll accept that. And with that, let's just say it is impossible, right? But if we were to try and do it anyway, how would we do it? Now, when you ask a question like that, it might take time, but you start to see some possibilities. It might take days, weeks, months of discussions. How would we do it if we were to try and do it? But you start to see at least see some possibilities. So that was the first thing that I noticed with the people who, who, who I interviewed was the resilience was so high because they were very solution focused. 
There was no real uh, line in the sand where they said, right, if this happens, I give up. You know, if this happens, I give up. There was no line in the sand. Again, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he talked about, uh, he acted in a film and he was terrible. It's five years before he got another role. He was a very successful business. He was a multimillionaire, still trying to be an actor. And he said, people say, Arnold, why don't you give up? Why don't you give up and try to do something else? He said, but it's not in my vision to give up. And, you know, again, as I said, I start to see these again and again as I watch interviews of successful people. You see these patterns repeat again and again. Uh, the second part, resilience. I might have mentioned we chatted recently uh, a guy called Simon Sinek. Remember I mentioned him? That's right. Yeah, you were telling me that's uh, 150,000 per talk. Now. Yeah, yeah. Simon, so, so you, Simon, got, in, you uh, got in there before the, before the increase, I presume. The what? I you did, got yeah, in there yeah, before well, the well, increase. Well, yeah. He was he was he was making big money back then. Um, but Simon Sinek, he's been on Diary of CEO, he's on all the big podcasts, he's on the big TV shows. He he's a leadership expert. I suppose he's what you'd call a thought leader, or maybe even a philosopher. Uh, he's a New York Times best-selling author. I think he's he's three, at least three, maybe four best-selling books on the New York Times New York Times. Uh, as I mentioned there, he costs over 150000 to get him to give a speech. And the reason he costs that much is because this guy is the real deal. You know, he studied anthropology uh, in college. So he understands how we evolved in tribes and as individuals over thousands of years. Um, but one, actually, Simon, again, you mentioned how, how difficult it would have been to get him. I contacted his people in February. and They said, he loves your book idea. He'd love to be part of it. He'll give you an hour of a telephone interview. Could you interview him on the 6th of November? So I had to wait about nine months to get him on the phone. He was brilliant. And actually, he used to be a marketing guru. Very, very bright guy. Again, he would use his understanding of psychology. But he asked me, why are you writing this book? And I said, well, it's kind of the book I wanted to read, but nobody had written it. And he said, you should put that on the cover. And so I did. That's down there on the bottom. So that was some free marketing advice from Simon Sinek. But Simon's probably his most famous piece of work uh, he's got a book called Start With Why, and he gave a TED Talk that probably has the same title. It's one of the most viewed TED Talk. And he talks about, you know, maybe in terms of achieving things, in terms of achieving our visions, he says there's three parts to it. There's what we do, there's how we do it, and there's why we're doing it. And he says that why we're doing it is the big predictor as to whether we'll succeed or not. And the reason for this is because what we do and how we do it connect to the logical part of the brain why we do it connects to the emotional part of the brain, the part of the brain that drives behavior, particularly long-term behavior and true obstacles. I'll give you some quick examples before we finish up on this section. I didn't mention this, but Nando, you know, there were 16 people who survived and there was even more who died in the later stages, you know, after the plane had crashed. All of them wanted to survive the plane crash behind these mountains. Um, but what separated Nando, I think, was his mother and his sister were in the plane crash and they died. And his dad was back in Uruguay by himself. And Nando, when he, Nando was unconscious for three days. He was in a coma. They thought he was dead. Um, but when he woke up, he looked at the wall of mountains that surround him. And he said, I don't care what it takes. I have to find a way out of here because I've got to get back to Uruguay to hug my dad, tell him that I love him and that he's not alone. And that became Nando's vision. And he would fight with everything that he had to turn that vision into reality. So, if we look at Nando's story, as he said, everybody wanted to, to live. But with Nando, what was different was, what did he do? He trekked across the Andes Mountains. 
How did he do it one step at a time? But why did he do it to get back to his dad? To make sure that that man didn't have to grow old alone. And I think sometimes I heard an interview recently on the radio. I don't know what the girl's name was, but she she lost 11 stone in weight. And she talked about how she'd been overweight for a long time, but she had a baby. And she said, when, by the time maybe the baby was one, she said, I'd always tried to lose weight, but I just couldn't. She said, I didn't love myself enough to lose the weight, but I loved my baby enough to lose the weight. And I think sometimes we can do things for the love of other people that, you know, we wouldn't even do for ourselves. So, uh, again, we're, we're looking at two parts to this section, uh, being very solution orientated, focusing on solutions and searching for compelling reasons why you want your vision to become reality. A couple more examples. Do you want to come in? No, it's just it makes so much sense in terms of the why I I can think of two things. I always related a lot of it back to teaching because obviously a lot of my time would be spent with kids. And when we when they decide they want to choose a particular career, that's one of the questions I'd want to ask them. You know, what why I, I asked 12 year olds last week, what do they want to be? And someone said a, a, a radiologist and someone said a neurologist. And I'm thinking, like, why at 12 do you want to be a neurologist or how? And they say, oh, because, you know, my, my dad is one or my dad wants to be one. I'm like, that's that's a, a why that when they hit this resilience and something they don't want to do, it's just going to the, the vision's going to crumble. And no, another yeah. part you said about was when we do something, when we have to. I had a woman on, a, on the podcast previously who donated a kidney to her daughter and she had to be at a certain weight to do that. And when she heard that, she had tried for a while to lose weight, but when she heard that, it was a non-negotiable. She just oh, yeah. went to the gym, made a plan, and, and the vision was there. So it didn't seem like there could be, a, there was obstacles, but the, it, it didn't matter. Anything could have come up and she was going to lose it, the weight. There's no question. You know, the, the why is so compelling. And again, with the kid who's a, a neurologist, wants to be, says they want to be a neurologist, if, if it's being pushed on them by the parents, it's not their why. They don't have a very compelling reason why, and they will crumble. And it's not their vision. And trying to push through the obstacles will be a nightmare, right? Whereas if the kid really admires the parent and says, I want to grow up to be like that or mom, that's a very compelling reason why. And they, and they, they probably will push through. Um, just a couple of other examples. I was in a school, uh, I presume in Dublin. And one of the lads had written down that he wants to play for the Dublin senior football team when he's older. That's his vision. And I says, well, that's a big one. And that's a tough one. I said, why do you want to do that? And he said, oh, well, when I was, he said, uh, you know, my dad wasn't, wasn't around growing up. And he said, but my granddad would bring me to all my games. He'd bring me to training. He'd buy me my boots, my gloves. And he said, my granddad is a huge Dublin fan. And I just think if I could run out in Crow Park wearing a Dublin jersey with my granddad in the stand, it would be the ultimate way to thank him for everything that he did for him, for all the sacrifices that he made, all the things that he did that he didn't need to do. It wasn't his job, but he did it anyway. And I think that's a very compelling reason why he wants to play for Dublin. And on a cold February evening when it's lashing rain outside, and lads are looking out the window thinking, I'm not going to go out to train tonight. This young lad will go. And if he gets dropped off a team, he'll find his way to get back into the team and he'll keep progressing. I was in a working with a company recently and there were um, franchisee owners, I think you'd call it. So they, they had... It was a bigger company and some people own franchises in it. And we we're going through some of the visions for the future. And one guy wanted to grow his, his business. We were talking about the reasons why. He wants to grow his, his, his business. He wants to grow the 
the shops that he has, but also maybe take on more. And he, he said, I, I have a newborn child. He had an infant child. He's an older dad, right? And he said, I want to make sure that my business is solid and that that baby will be provided for financially going forward, whether I'm around or not. And this guy, what he does on a day-to-day basis, at times it might be quite boring, it might be quite tedious, but he's a very compelling reason why he's there. And very last example I've written down here, I was in a school in Cork, and a girl said to me, she wants to be a doctor. And I said, well, that's a, that's a big one. You know, it's a lot of points you need to get. And I said, why, why do you want to do it? Again, Stephen, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that they want to actually do the things they want to do. And not that they hear being a doctor is something, they, you know. But I said to her, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, oh, well, my granny nearly died last year. And she said, I absolutely love my granny. And she said, she was at that store. She said, I watched these doctors basically bring her back to life. And she said, and I thought to myself, Oh my God, I would love to do that for somebody else's granny someday. And I think that's a very emotional, uh, compelling reason why that will get you through the sacrifices of missing parties, of having to study, of having to stay in when everybody else is out having fun to get to the level of becoming a doctor. So just maybe to recap before we discuss a little further, to where we are now, the people who I interviewed did a clear vision that was exciting to them. They broke their plan down into a, you know, very small steps. They didn't worry about having all the steps. They just had the first few. Uh, and then when it comes to um, resilience, a few key things that I found were uh, being very solution-orientated, to accept there will be problems and obstacles. Nobody wants them, but they'll arrive. We need to inst- have some, maybe some solution-based questions ready at hand, and maybe a notebook as well that's specifically designed for that, uh, to ask those key questions focusing on solutions, get help to try and find solutions. And the other thing is write down the reasons why you want your vision to become reality. And the more compelling, the better. And reread those when times get tough. Um, so it's really about developing a mindset for resilience. And uh, just actually, uh, just something I, I was in a, in a company here years ago, and I often take a break after the resilience section. We'll take a break and maybe have coffee or whatever. The guy came up to me and he said to me that he's originally from the Philippines and he says the word resilience is a very important word in their culture. And he said, when the monsoon season arrives and the storms arrive, he said, a lot of people, they've got to leave these poorly built homes and take refuge on higher ground, usually in concrete buildings like churches or government buildings. And he says, well, they wait for the monsoon or the storm to pass. He said, the elders don't sit there and hope and pray their house doesn't blow down because they know they have no control over it. The the monsoon's going to do what it's going to do. And he said, instead, they sit there and they focus on being resilient. And they say the word resilience. And they say, whatever we face when we leave here, we will rebuild. Whatever damage the storms have done, we will rebuild and we'll rebuild better than we had before. And it doesn't matter if it's my house or your house together as friends and as a community we will rebuild together. And they basically just got this pre-decided mindset as to how they will deal when they go out there. And it's very much, you'll hear a lot of people say, control the controllables. And that's really one of those. And it's not, it's not um, waiting for negative things to happen. Um, it's kind of understanding that they're going to happen and knowing that they're going to react to it. Not, okay, I, I, I'm waiting for something like someone might have a negative mindset, oh, something's going to uh, ruin this. 
they're knowing, understanding that a massive goal and a massive vision is not going to be easy. So therefore, yeah. embracing the, the, the things that's going to hold them back. And that kind of brings you up on the level of that uh, diagram that we saw, that small person to another person. That if you come and over, overcome small resilience, well, the next one mightn't seem as big. We, and we grow. When we face an obstacle and overcome, we can't help but grow. We don't want them. We'd like if it was smooth sailing, but we do grow from every obstacle. And like you talked about people having negative mindset. Um, I'm kind of so immersed in this that I just, it doesn't register. I forget that people have negative mindsets, that people talk themselves out of doing things because it is just a series of small steps. People can't convince me that they couldn't achieve most things. You know, there's certain things, there's there's very few examples, and we'll talk about a little bit later, maybe Anders Ericsson, the, the world's leading expert in expertise. He's found very little evidence of people being naturally gifted or talented or special. Um, which you, the environment early on can play a big part, your, the, your upbringing. Another fair factor is, uh, for example, you know, we, we have this sort of idea that maybe Asian people are very good at maths. And one of the reasons is because it's, it's, it's considered brilliant in their, in their society. Really good at maths or sciences, it's really celebrated. Like, whereas we celebrate sports stars or actors and stuff like that on this side of the world. And so people are drawn towards these things early on in their lives and by the environment. The, the sort of rare examples that you will find of natural giftedness will be in your physical body. And just one that springs to mind is, you know, Michael Phelps, mm-hmm. greatest swimmer of all time. I think he's about six foot four. And there is a Moroccan runner. I can't remember. I'll find out his name. He's five foot nine, right? And uh, he's won gold medals in running, right? So Phelps is a gold medal swimmer, a runner. A guy's got a Moroccan guy's got gold, two gold medals in running. Now, six foot four, Phelps. This guy's five foot nine. They both have the same length legs, right? Now, what this means is that Phelps has quite short legs and a long torso. And it's like a canoe. So this gives him an advantage in swimming. The runner has really long legs for his height and quite a small torso. So he's got real long legs, a big long stride, but very little upper body to carry around. Now, if you were to swap them around and say to the Moroccan guy, you're going to be the swimmer and Phelps, you're going to be the runner, right? We can absolutely improve their abilities in those sports, right? But they're very unlikely to reach the heights the opposite sport because of these physical but in with those aside there are the very few exceptions of where people might be can actually have a real advantage right so um so we've got that i actually heard the particular story on a podcast called the science of sport and it was kind of it was i wouldn't say shocking but it, it was the first time it was like oh there's actually evidence for some people having a slight advantage but that was strictly in sport we talk about a lot of goals we're setting here and a lot of them are personal goals and, and the way they, they're stopped is because of the belief I, th- I heard a story before about elephants at, at circuses and when they're tied up as babies they, they can't get out and so when they continue to grow and they're still tied up, they just are convinced themselves, they have com- themselves convinced that, 
oh, well, I couldn't do this yesterday. I won't be able to do it tomorrow. And we're kind of flipping that saying, well, I could do that small thing yesterday. Maybe I can do that slightly bigger thing tomorrow. Absolutely. We're, we're going to get that. We're going to tie it all together because, um, and again, I was just making that point with the swimmer and the runner is these are ordinary people achieving extraordinary. We can't guarantee that whatever, if you decide you want to do this or that, that you'll get to the very top of that field. You can't guarantee that because one of the things that held me back as a footballer was I only really took it up at 11. And I, and I was didn't really have maybe professional coaches who were coaching badges till I was 15 or 16. I had people who were coming down volunteering, very grateful for the time that they gave. But I was competing with, with lads who were maybe playing from the age of six, who were getting good coaching from the age of six, who were from football families, who had over older siblings who were playing football. So they had lots of real... Not only did they have basics that they learned long before I did, they had better environments to flourish as footballers. So that was it made it difficult for me to get to the top of that field. So not everybody can get to the top of the field for various circumstances, but we can absolutely improve in any area. Absolutely. And most people don't want to get to the top of field in every area. Very few, you know, we don't have time. We've got to pick a few areas where we're going to go big. And but just in terms of you know, the elephant giving up because they maybe they tried and failed in the past. So even though they're more than capable of doing it now, they don't try. Uh, just before we move on, I interviewed these people because they achieved extraordinary things. But a common denominator that I kept coming across again and again as I interviewed these people, they say, Stephen, look, long before I achieved this big extraordinary thing, earlier in my life, I achieved something much smaller, right? Something that in the eyes of the world probably wasn't a big deal, right? But to me, it was huge. It gave me a big boost in confidence and it gave me the courage to dream bigger and bigger dreams. Now, Stephen, I call that a breakthrough goal. And that's always the challenge that I set uh, people to set or encourage them to set and achieve is a breakthrough goal. Um, it's not a long-term one. It's something you can get done within two or three months, right? And I'm always just encouraging people to try and go from here to here. Because if they go from this small, tiny matchstick person to the slightly bigger one, they'll believe they can go from there. This is the critical one to take this first step particularly if you've tried and failed in the past with certain things, or if you haven't been setting or trying to achieve goals in a, in a while, to set a smaller one, something that is beyond your current abilities today, learning how to play the guitar, that was a breakthrough goal for me. Right? Uh, it took me two or three months, but I, I learned how to play it. Now I play it almost every single day. I have a guitar there, another guitar in the far side of the, uh, the apartment. Maybe set yourself a fitness challenge. Maybe make a short film, right? It, it, it's not important. It's something you get done in two or three months, but it's got to force you to grow and develop new skills in order to achieve. And that gives us the boost and confidence and the courage to dream bigger and bigger dreams. So, and and when we when how we achieve them, and um, we have that breakthrough goal is to continue to improve a small bit at a time. And that's as you're going to tell me is kind of the the thing that wraps it all together as to how we actually get towards that vision. It's, it's the real magic. And uh, when, we, when we chatted there recently as well, we, we talked about a brilliant book. Um, and by the way, Debbie Deegan is a book. I'll, I'll, I'll find that out shortly, um, which tells the whole story. The orphanage of people want to, want to read that as well. But uh, we were talking about Atomic Habits, the book by James Clear, which is really as good as it gets. But one of the things that James Clear talks about and that really jumps out is he talks about at the, at the Olympics. Right. For every event, every person who's qualified had, had the exact same vision, and that was to win Olympic gold. 
Now, only one person will do it at any given Olympics in that event. So what separates these people? Because everybody at the Clear Vision, it's those who have the better continuous improvement strategies in place. Those who improve a small amount, but over a long period of time. And so that's what we want to really examine now. And we're going to go into uh, sort of the next thing that I've been working on after Brilliant Mondays, which is called the Kaizen Zone. So I might just get a couple of drawings and then we'll crack into that. Is that all right? 